week, uh, we began a new series in the book of James. James is five chapters, uh, about 108 verses with 51 commands. That means there's approximately one command in every other verse. James is determined to help us know how to live out our Christian faith. So James's concern is not how much how we become saved, but how we live because we're saved. Does that make sense? This is where Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. Because he was like, hey, it doesn't, it doesn't tell us how to be saved. He wasn't seeing the gospel. But what James is doing is he's saying the gospel produces this kind of life. And so that's what James is doing for us. He's wanting us to know what does it look like to live by faith? How do we live out the Christian life? And so our prayer as we go through this series is that God would convict us, God would challenge us, and God would change us as we're presented with his word showing this is what a faith in Christ looks like. And so we're going to jump right in today uh, in James chapter 1, verse 12. I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand. Uh, we stand at the reading of God's word here. Uh, we do so to remind ourselves that God's word comes with his full authority. It's inspired by the Spirit. It's for the purpose of our teaching, of our correcting uh, in righteousness. So we'll do verses uh, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for this book that fleshes out the Christian faith. That shows us what it's like to live as your people. To live in a way that's honoring to you. Live in a way worthy of the faith to which you has called us to. And so Lord, I pray. That, Lord, you would work through your word by the power of your spirit today to change us, to help us understand your word, to convict us where there is sin, to comfort us, to restore us, to strengthen us, that, Lord, we would grow in our maturity today. Lord, may we grow in a better understanding of the faith to which you have called us to live. In your name, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> this is an exciting book. Um, I hope you enjoy it as we're going through. There's a lot here. Uh, so today, uh, in the beginning, I just kind of want to set up where we're going. Uh, James kind of presents us in this first chapter with two paths. Uh, last week we saw that we're to count all trials as joy. And the reason we count them as joy is not because we love the trials. Remember, we don't love the trials. We don't love the hard days and the difficulties that come. But we know the purpose behind them. Trials are the means in which God tests our faith for the purpose of maturing us. For the purpose of helping us become more like his son Jesus. So that one day we would receive the crown of life. So, 
Trials are the means which God tests our faith to mature us so we receive the crown of life. Um, But now today, James wants us to know that there's an enemy that we face as we encounter these trials. And that enemy is what we see as temptation. Verse 15, we see the goal of temptation is death. And when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. And we all know temptations. Many of you have faced quite a few temptations this morning. All of us will face temptations as we go throughout the rest of today, this week, our lives. We're tempted to be impatient. Anyone tempted with that yet today? Didn't get my coffee yet. Uh, Being angry, to lust, to be dishonest, to steal, to lie, commit adultery, be obsessed with power, prestige, possessions, to fight, to to cheat. I mean, we can just go on and on and on with a list of temptations that you and I, that every single person we battle with every day. Now the question is, is, is really what path will we take? Will we, will we persevere through the trials that God has given us as a means of testing our faith, that we mature and uh, receive the crown of life? Or as these trials come, will we see them as temptations and will we disobey God's word, which results in death? This is what James is, is holding before us today. And, and we need to be careful that we don't answer too quickly. I think as many of us Christians, we go, well, I just won't be tempted. I'm strong. I'm not going to do that. But verse 16, if you look at it, he says, do not be deceived. Who's he talking to? My what? My beloved brothers. He's talking to the church. We're family. So he's saying, guys, do not be deceived. Which if he tells us not to be deceived, what does that mean that there's a possibility of? We could be See, we're, we're like right in on this together. So if he says, don't be deceived, there's a reason for that, and so that's what we're fleshing out today. Because temptation is deceptive. It doesn't wear a sign that says death on it, does it? If it did, it would make it so much easier. In fact, often, the temptations we face are very beautiful. They're very seductive. It promises um, some level of happiness. It's kind of like the the witch in Snow White, she comes and hands her the apple. The apple looks really good, but, but beneath the apple, it's, it's laced with poison. So if temptation is seductive, then how do we stand firm? How do we resist? How do we persevere in our obedience that we receive the crown of life? And so what James is going to give us today is, is two questions that we must answer and two truths that we need to enjoy. And... Uh, We'll start with the first two questions. Where does temptation not come from? This is what James wants us to understand. Now, perhaps you've heard something something like this before. I only yelled because you were yelling. He hit first. Well, I was only speeding because my alarm didn't go off. Uh, The person says, well, I cheated because my my spouse is always gone. They, They don't fulfill my needs. All of these are justifications for why we have sinned, right? And, and all of them place the blame outside of ourselves. Because of sin, we, we naturally and we quickly blame our environment, our circumstances, and other people. This is James' point. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted that he's being tempted by God. Now, many of you know and are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. If not, you can go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That'll uh, speed you up on that. 
But we have Adam and Eve, the first uh, two, uh, two humans on earth. And they're in the garden. The serpent comes and he tempts Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. They're able to eat everything, but there's one tree which they're not supposed to eat of. It's through their not eating of this tree that they demonstrate the obedience to God, their worship of God, their submission to God. The serpent comes. Eve takes the fruit. She hands it to Adam. He eats it. And then God enters the garden. Isn't this how it works? Kids, like when, when they're at home, they do something, and then what happens? The parents walk in. Like we, we know how this plays out. So God enters the garden, and he says, hey, what are you doing? And of course, as parents, we usually already know what's going on. But God perfectly understands, and he knows. And so what does Adam say? The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. So who'd he blame? Not just the woman. She gave it to me, but I mean, you gave me the woman. So it's your fault. Um, and then, of course, Eve's like, well, it's the serpent. I mean, everyone's pointing in other directions. Um, we're really good at pointing fingers. Have, have you noticed this in culture? In your own life? No one's taking responsibility. And when we place the source of the temptation outside of ourselves, then what do we become? Victims. And we're not really held responsible, are we? Now before we move on, we must know it's really fitting that James uses this example uh, about blaming God. After all, earlier in the chapter, who brings trials into our life? Throughout the entire book, or book all 66 books of the Bible, what is a truth that we see? God is sovereign over all events, over all circumstances. Over every situation that we are in, God is sovereign. And as James has said, God is the one who will bring trials, difficulties in your life for the purpose of producing maturity in us that we would receive the crown of life. It only makes sense that now he's saying we might often think that God is the one that we should blame. After all, he brought the trial but remember, God brings trials to test us that we would grow in our faith. It's the sin inside of us that turns that into a temptation. One man who had cheated on multiple wives was once asked, why did he continue to cheat? He answered, well, God made me this way. I have desires. His reasoning was, well, if I didn't have these desires, I wouldn't do this. But since God gave me these desires, obviously this is the lifestyle he has destined me for. Fatalism is his answer. And we can fall into that very quickly, where we're blaming others for why it is that we do what we do. But James is quick to correct this. He gives us two truths about God. First, he says, God cannot be tempted by evil. Now, it would be fun to spend an entire sermon right there. God has absolutely no inclination to sin. Do you, do you realize that? He is unable to sin. It holds no attraction or beauty to God. The reason we sin, it always offers us some level of joy. It always attracts us to some degree. To God, there is no temptation that is attractive for him at all. God is holy. Every thought and every motive and every action he has is perfectly pure it's a little hard for us even to wrap our minds around on how that can be so perfect second he then says and god tempts no one 
So yes, God is sovereign over all events. Yes, he brings trials into our lives, but he never does so that we would sin. His purpose is to test that we would be built in our faith for our relationship to grow. God is not tricking us by the trials he brings. He's not wishing that we would rebel against him. He's not setting a trap saying, ooh, maybe I'll get him this time. So if our temptations do not come from God, and it's not the people, the circumstances, or the environment around us that tempts us, where does temptation come? And that brings us to our next question, where does temptation come? And we see in verses 14 and 15, James teaches that where the source, what is the source and the path of temptation. So uh, we first look at the source. Verse 14, James says, temptation comes from where? Our own desires in james 4 1 we read this what causes quarrels what causes fights among you is it not that your passions are at war within you passions is the same word for desires so in chapter 4 we'll revisit this topic and he says the reason you fight it's not because of other people it's because you have a war within you temptation Therefore, it's not an outside job, but it's the inside job. Temptations come from within our own hearts. Now, just think that through for a moment. If that's true, if it's true that the reason I get angry, the reason I get impatient, the reason I lust is, is not ultimately because of other people, or because of my environment, or because of situations, but it's because of what's in my own heart. This means people and circumstances are not the source. They're simply the occasion that brings about the temptations within my own heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, Our hearts are deceitful. The source of my temptation then is what? It's me. It's inside my own heart. It's my sin. And so, so James wants us to see a little bit of the path of temptation here. In verse 14, James uses two words that help us understand kind of how temptation works. He uses the word lure and the word entice. Now the word lure can mean dragged away, but it can also mean being drawn away. And with the word entice, I think that's the way it's being used here because the word entice is a fishing term for bait. Now, to be clear, I know nothing about fishing. Like, nothing. I should have talked to Roy. I could have talked to Chris. could have talked to John. There's so many of you that could speak so much better on, on where James is going here than me. I went fishing really once in my life. I caught nothing. I think we actually caught a rock. I don't know how that's possible, but I'm pretty sure we actually brought in a rock, and so I've, I've never, I don't think, fished again. Um, but I, I, I get the idea behind it. You, you throw a bait, and the bait's what? Meant to draw the fish out. Now, why does it draw the fish out? Because it entices the fish. It's seductive. It's attractive. It looks beautiful to him, and, and I know nothing about the way spinners and things move in the, air, the water, nothing. But I do understand the bait is to be attractive in the way it moves and the way it flashes so that the fish, with all of its might, with all of its zeal, will come forth, it'll draw it out, that it would bite onto that 
that bait, but only then do find out that there's a hook inside of it. And you notice the bait does not force the fish to come. The fish comes because it desires what is there. It finds it's beautiful. It's appealing. This is how temptation works. We are tempted because we find sin to be beautiful. And we, we can talk about temptation in multiple ways. One, we can, be, we can be tempted when we have desires that go unmet. And our desires are not always evil. Do you know that? And that's not what James is saying here. Not every desire you have is evil, but every desire you have is subject to being perverted by sin. The desire we could have would be for a, a better job, our kids not to fight, to have the house clean when we get home from work. Those are all good, fairly neutral desires, wouldn't you say? Nothing wrong with that. Our desires are attractive, but they're deceptive. You see, the desires are prone to be perverted by sin. Thus, the desire for our kids not to fight can quickly become a demand and if that demand is not met, what happens? We become upset, we become disappointed, which then we're tempted with how we will respond. And oftentimes the parent then does what? Yells at the kids for yelling. Which then they're falling into the very sin that they're not wanting their kids to do. And they have a great desire. I don't want my kids to fight. But they're fighting and now I'm fighting with them. So oftentimes we're tempted because we have desires that go unmet, but we also are tempted because we have the wrong desires at times. And surely James, at least somewhere in the back of his mind as he's writing this, probably thinks of 2 Samuel 11, about the story of David and Bathsheba. Many of you know that story. You can go read it later. David is the king. His army is off to war, which possibly he was supposed to be at, but he's at home. He goes for a stroll on top of the house. Nothing wrong with this at all. He sees that, there is, that Bathsheba is naked, bathing herself. Technically, nothing necessarily wrong at all. He's on his house. He looks. He sees something. We all see things at times, right? But what does he do? He can turn his eyes. He can walk away. But he doesn't do that. He's enticed. He notices that she's very beautiful. So we're, we're getting a little deeper now into the problem. And then he inquires, well, well, who is she? And then he invites her to his house where they end up uh, uh, having sex and she becomes pregnant. Temptation is attractive and it's deceptive. It will always lead us into disobedience of God's word. And the result is death. That's, that's the goal of temptation. God is bringing trials that he would test us to mature us, that we would have life and joy everlasting. But temptations went to pervert that trial that rather than obey, we would disobey. Rather than pursue the joy that God has before us, we would pursue a short, temporal, finite joy. So why did David not fight back? How does he not avoid this temptation? I mean, I think when we're reading the book, that's what we ask, right? David, you're the king. You're the guy with a heart after God's own heart. Well, I think often we, we believe that we are stronger than temptation. Or that we are not susceptible that, to that temptation. We say things like, I, I wouldn't do that. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever heard of someone else's sin and go, I just can't believe they did that. Mm. Only they were more righteous like me. I mean, that's kind of what we're saying, right? When we say, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they would be so foolish to fall. Didn't he know that was the, what was going to happen? 
I think we think of temptation like a, like a small lion cub. We can control it. We're stronger than it. It's pretty cute. But here's the thing. The longer we play with temptation, what happens? It grows in its power. It grows in its strength. And this once small lion cub now grows into what? A giant man-eater. And then we act surprised when one day it kills us. This is what James means in verse 15. Sin, when it is fully grown, what? Brings forth death. This is the point. This is what James is saying. This temptation that you're, you're flirting with. You think you have a handle on? You think you can flirt with sin? See, when people are dating, what, what's the question we often ask? How far can we go? It's like, how close can I get to sin without actually crossing the line? Rather, how far can I get away from temptation? Like, we don't ask that question. How do I protect myself from any temptation? Rather, it's, how, how close can I go? I think we do that in many ways. So I ask you, is there a temptation that you are toying with? And think through, be honest. What's going on in your own heart? What's going on in your own private time? Perhaps it's pornography. Perhaps it's anger. Maybe it's some lust of possessions. Lust is not always sexual. It can be for power. It can be for prestige, more respect, either at home or at work. It can be just for possessions in general. And maybe if you're sitting here and you're going, I I don't know, what, what am I tempted with at this moment? Answer this, what are you preoccupied with? When, when you have some downtime, where does your mind go? What do you obsess over? What do you want? What do you desire? What do you think you should have, but for some reason you don't have at this moment? Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's possession, respect, peace, cleanliness, whatever. What you find is attractive is what often will occupy the thoughts of your mind. But we need to know, do not toy with temptation. Men, it's not a good idea to go to the Victoria's Secret website at night for shopping. Just, just shopping, just want to get my wife a good gift. Like there are things that we do where we're getting close to those lines when rather we should see how far do we move away. Verse 16 says, do not be deceived. We have to realize that temptation is around us constantly. And James is saying, wake up! Like you got to think through this. you got to be aware of the temptation. We must kill it. J.C. Ryle, the Puritan, says this. He's talking about habits, but I think it applies to temptations quite well. Habits, like trees, are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it's a sapling, but a hundred men cannot root it up when it's a fully grown tree. Do you understand? Let us pull the temptation out right away. Let us cut it at its root while it's a sapling. Let's not play with it. Let's not feed it that it would grow, that the lion would become, the, li- the cub would become a giant lion, or the, the small sapling would become the giant oak tree. So how do we kill it? Where do we find temptation? Or where do we find the strength to resist? How can we per- pers- um, persevere in obedience so we receive the crown of life? Well, this is where now we we take two truths. 
that we're meant to enjoy. And the reason I say that we're to enjoy is that these truths are not just factual things like I know and I check a box, but they're meant to be enjoyed, that we love them, that we worship God, that they, they grow in us an affection for God. And so number one, our God is perfectly holy and always good. Our God is perfectly holy and he is always good. Let, let me read a, a quote from a theologian and an author. He says, With the sun and the moon come variation. During the day it's sunny, then night falls, and with it, darkness. In the middle of the day your shadow is very small, for the sun's rays shine from directly overhead. Then as the sun moves towards the horizon, your shadow grows in size. If you were to stand next to a tall building, your shadow might stand as tall as a 20-foot wall. Your shadow has changed. God, however, has no shadow, nor is he like a shadow subject to change. He always remains the same. On that basis, James concludes, you can trust God to remain good. You can trust God. You can trust that this God always has your good in mind and will always act in a way that reflects his goodness, even in the midst of trials that he has ordained for you. See, verse 6, 17, this is what we read. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So Father of lights is a Hebrew way of referring to the God who created everything, the God of creation. The God who created the sun, the moon, and the stars. And while it looks like we revolve around the sun, which, which is true, but the sun's not standing still either, is it? It's moving also around the entire Milky Way galaxy. Everything is moving in orbit. What looks to be constant to us all throughout creation, there is nothing entirely constant, but there is one constant who lies outside of creation and that is God the one who created all things the one who sustains all, all things the one who which all of creation and all of life is depended upon and so one of the central attributes of God which we could spend a whole sermon here and it would be a lot of fun and I'm trying to figure out when we'll do this but on the immutability of God and now you're saying well that doesn't sound like a very fun sermon <laughs> but what it means is he's unchanging He's always perfect. He'll always be perfect. He's faithful. He'll always be faithful. As we read earlier, he's not tempted to sin, and he'll never be tempted to sin. Why? Why will God never have the least desire for sin? Because he's immutable. He's holy. He'll always be holy. And never anything unholy will show the least bit of attraction to him. We see this in Scripture. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Revelation 1, 8, we read, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is good news. Our God is always perfect, always holy, always faithful, always dependable. So why do we need to enjoy the truth that our God is perfectly holy and always good? Because our sin wants to blame God. Remember what James brings up earlier. Don't, don't think God is the one tempting you. We want to somehow think that he's acted unjustly. But here James is reminding, no, 
Our God is always good. There's no corruption, no injustice in him. He is righteous, and he always acts righteous. He always thinks righteous. Everything he does is righteous. And it's because he's immutable, and we need to build that word into our vocabulary, that we can trust in his promises. Promises like Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says, God will complete the good work he began in you. How do you know that? I mean, God said it, but why do you know it? Because he's faithful. Because he never breaks his promises. Because he's not like you and me. Well, I had a good intention, I just didn't have the power to carry out. No, he's immutable, he's all-powerful, so all he desires, he's able to do. And so he is holy, and every promise he gives, he will accomplish, and we don't need to doubt that, because he never changes. Promises like 8.28 from Romans. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's a good verse, huh? We can cling to that one. And sometimes we need to, right? Because when we're in the trial, are we, are we rejoicing? Oh man, I love trials. No, we know with the trial, God's using it as a means of test. But what is my heart wanting to do with the trial? Turning it into a temptation. Maybe God's not here. Maybe he has forgotten. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe this trial is a means of punishment. Maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe I'm not a child of God. Maybe he didn't keep his word. And we can go on and on and on. But what we then come back down to is the character of God, his immutability. Say, wait a minute. God is good. He says he will always do good for those whom he loves. So how do I fight against the temptation? With who our God is is that's what james is doing he's bringing us right into the character of god or in first corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man god is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability so he knows every trial that he brings into our life he knows what you can take and what you can't But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice the way of escape is not necessarily the absence of temptation or no trial. Rather, he will give grace that we may be able to endure, or if we come back to James, that we would be steadfast in trials so we would grow into maturity, so we'd receive the crown of life. So when we think, oh man, there's no way I can stand in this. You're right, in your strength you can't. But what do we know God is doing in the trial? He's going to give you the grace you need. And you know that because he has promised it. And does God change his mind? Is he a man like you and I that he should lie or change his mind? No, he's immutable. He's perfect, always is perfect. The word that he goes forth 2,000 years ago is the same then as it is today. His purposes never change. You see why it'd be good just to like spend time looking through the Bible on the immutability of God? And just seeing his constantness. Seeing his dependableness. Dependableness? Dependability? Seeing how faithful he is? Words. So why is it God will never let us be tempted beyond our ability? Because he's faithful. We need to know that. I hope you know that today. He's dependable. He's faithful. He's immutable. We can trust every promise and every word that he gives because he will never, ever, ever change. He never lies. He never forgets. He never 
disappoints. How do you know this? How do you know that this is who our God is? How do you know he's actually this good? How do you know he'll always be faithful? How do you know that he won't change his mind? How do you know he will comfort and guide and strengthen? How do we know? Now think about it. Someone comes to you. You're in the trial. You're having temptation. Well, have you trusted in the character of God? Yes, I know he's immutable. How do you know he's immutable? How has God demonstrated his faithfulness to you? His love for us? This brings us to our next point, that we're not only to know, but we're to enjoy. That our God has demonstrated His extravagant goodness by saving us for His own possession. Look at verse 18. He says, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. The words brought us forth, forth by the uh, the words brought us forth by the word of truth refers to our salvation it's used five times in the new testament every time it refers to our salvation know this if we're not responsible for our sin if sin and temptation is something that lies outside of us then the cross is ridiculous it's stupid and it makes no sense Because why would Jesus come and die for the penalty of our sins if we're never held responsible in the first place? Makes no sense. It's precisely because we have sinful hearts. As James says, they are deceitful in every way. That God sent His Son Jesus so that He would die and He would absorb the wrath that we should have so we can be forgiven and we can be saved. See what James does here in verse 17 and 18? He directs all of our attention to who God is and what he has done for us in the gospel. Don't let that pass you up. See, if you were to go to a secular counselor, or I'll say a Christian counselor, now when I say Christian counselor, just know that majority of Christian counselors are really Christian in title, but not in practice. Putting that out there. Um, If you were to go to them with a problem of marital problems, lust, anger, various temptations that you're wrestling with, what are they going to do? They'll probably point you to some type of secular answer and secular solution and probably give you medicine, which not always wrong, and probably give you four or five or six steps to do when you're angry in order to cool you down. What does James do? Look at what James does. He says the way you're going to overcome sin and temptation is by knowing God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He brings us into the very core of the message of the Bible. The the gospel is God's extravagant love towards us that we would be set free from sin, that we'd no longer be slaves to sin. You see, the more we understand God and the gospel, the allure and attraction of sin will grow pale. Do you know that? The beauty of temptation turns into a bloody minstrel rag when compared to the beauty of the cross. But it only happens as we come into the cross of Jesus Christ through his word. 
That's what James is doing us right now. He's saying, don't look out there for the problem that lies in here. God is the one who has come to deal with the heart problem. He is where you will understand the nature of sin, how to overcome sin and kill sin. Because his son Jesus went to the cross to die, to rise, to, be, to overcome it, so that when his spirit is in us, we would have the strength to overcome it also. Because we are his children, adopted in the family of God, empowered by his spirit. It's the beauty of the cross and the supreme, everlasting joy that it offers is what far outshines the attractiveness and temporary feelings of happiness that any temptation can offer. But you'll only see the hook in the bait when you actually see the God of the Bible and what he's done for us in his word. You don't need four steps. You don't need a hundred steps. What you and I and every believer needs and every unbeliever needs is to come to the knowledge of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's exactly where James is leading us right now. That we would have this hope, this joy. So I just want to show two truths in verse 18 that's meant to even increase our joy all the more, increase the comfort that we have and the hope that we have when we're in temptation. So number one, I just want us to see the source of our salvation, meaning why are we saved? Look at verse 18. First few words, what do we have? Who's the source of our salvation? I'm actually asking you. God, of his own will, he brought us forth. Why are you saved? Why are you saved? Because my will. Of his will, you have been brought forth, birthed, been given new life. God saves us by grace. Now think about this. He sees us in our muck and our mire. He sees our sinful hearts. He knows how we're tempted. He knows your lust, your anger, the evil thoughts that you have, what you think in your heads about it. He knows all of that. He knows every single thing that you think and know and that you don't even know that you think. He knows it better than you know yourself. And in spite of that, he gives his grace in his son, Jesus Christ. He says, I bring them forth by the power of my word. That's a God worthy of worship that saves us despite our sin. He sees it so much more clearly than we do. But then we say, well, did So he doesn't care about our sin? He just washes it under? No, his son pays the price for it, absorbs God's wrath, that we would then have his spirit so we could live as he calls us because comes to the next point, what's the purpose of our salvation? So if God is the source, why did he save you and I? What was his reasoning? What was his point? What did he want you and I to do as we are saved? Look at Verse 18, the last part. That, that should clue us in to we're in a purpose statement, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, first fruits, we don't necessarily use that around here. We don't have a lot of farmers around here. 
But in the Old Testament, the first fruits for Israel were holy. The very first crop that came up, they brought that to the temple. They brought it and sacrificed it to God. They dedicated it to God. It was holy. It was given to Him completely for His worship, for His honor, that God would take delight in it. And so God is saying, I've saved you, that you'd be what? That you'd be devoted to me? That I would have you? That you'd be mine? So you would be holy. See, God's saving us is not that we stay where we're at, it's that we're then transformed, that we would live as he calls us to. That we would be a holy people. So why then can we overcome temptation? Why can we kill sin? Oh, because God saved you. He knows you. And He loves you. And He gave you His Spirit. So not only He would regenerate you, but He would strengthen you every single day. So no matter what temptation comes your way, you are able to overcome. Not by your power, not by your strength, but by the very grace of God, which means there's no temptation that comes your way which you cannot overcome. I am not saying that temptations will not come back. I am not saying that there are certain trials that you just won't face anymore. But with every trial, whenever the temptation comes, God's grace is there that you would endure, persevere, obey, grow in maturity for what? So you would receive what in verse 12? The crown of life. This is what God is doing. So as you're looking at temptations, and sometimes we get bogged down and we go, how am I supposed to survive in this? What am I supposed to do? Now we'll look more at this next week. Next week, James is building on this. But right now, just just take the truth. He's bringing us into the very character of God. God is faithful. You can trust every promise He's given you. And if you want to know why, because He has revealed Himself most clearly through His Son, Jesus Christ, who has died on the cross. So you and I could have life. And so we would have hope as we go through every single day. So if you're battling porn, if you're battling lust, if you're battling anger, if you're battling patience, if you're battling just list whatever it is, God's grace is there. Because he promises he will complete the work he began in you. He promises that the trial in your life is for your good. And he promises that there is no temptation that has come your way. That he will not also provide the means in which you can escape. And that means to endure through it. There is nothing in your life that our perfect heavenly father is not with you. There guiding you, strengthening, and helping you with. Why? Because he's immutable. He's unchanging. And he'll always give grace. How do you know? Because of his son, Jesus. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to take communion. I just want you to think, as we come into communion, what are we doing? We're specifically celebrating the very grace that God has given us that he promised even before creation. And why did he keep his word? Because he's immutable. How do we know that he'll come again? Because he's immutable. He said he will come, he will come and we, long, we look for and we long for that day. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll have the men come forward. Our Father, God, I pray, I pray that our hearts are comforted right now. Lord, I know that there are, there are people here 
that are battling very real temptations. And some of those temptations have been going on for a long time. And they feel tired. They feel worn out. They don't know how they can persevere. They're tempted to wonder if you are there. But God, I pray that through your word today, the power of your spirit, that you've reminded us, God, you are faithful. While everything else may change, you do not. God, may we know that your spirit is in us, strengthening us. And God, may we look deeply into your word where we see your extravagant grace given to us through your son Jesus. And may we be humbled. And may we be full of joy and love. For we know that you have saved us. Ultimately, our salvation is an act of your will, by your grace, for the purpose of us being holy, being made perfect, so that one day when your son comes back, we would be the bride that he would receive and that we would receive the crown of life. God, comfort everyone here with the temptation they're going through that they can stand firm. And Lord, as we go forward today, may we be reminded of verse 16. Do not be deceived. May those words ring true in our hearts That while we are being made perfect, we still battle with sin now. And that battle will continue until the day your Son returns. And may we not be deceived. May we not think the problem lies elsewhere. But God, may we trust in you. May we depend upon you for the strength needed to overcome and to kill the temptations that come our way. Father, as we take communion now, May we truly celebrate the cross, which is a demonstration of your faithfulness, of your immutability, which is a demonstration of your extravagant love, which testifies to the fact that we know you are coming again, and we long for that day. In your name, Jesus, amen.